Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm going to be coming to a city near some of you uh, in the next couple months. I'll be in Indianapolis on September 5th, Fort Wayne, Indiana on September 20, uh, 17th and 18th. I will be in Richmond, Virginia, September 24th, New York City, September 27th, 28th, uh, Colorado Springs, October 9th and 10th. And I will be in Minneapolis in early November, November 5th. And I believe the following week too. Um, if you want to go to centerforfaith.com, go to the events page, uh, look up these events. You do need to sign up. So if you want to attend one, two, or all of these events, then you do have to register. And especially the sooner ones, the ones in Indianapolis and Fort Wayne in particular, you're going to want to sign up like, right now, if you want to attend one of those events on faith, sexuality, and gender. So we'd love to see you there. Again, it's, uh, you can go to the events, uh, events link at centralfaith.com. Uh, look at the details of those events and sign up if you want to attend. Also, um, we are running, we, as in the center for faith, sexuality, and gender, uh, we are running a, an August special on, um, the, our digital leaders forum, the D digital leaders forum is as far as I can tell the most comprehensive e course on faith, sexuality, and gender over 20 videos of content over eight hours of content, uh, but which include both me teaching and me talking to different people from pastors to LGBT Christians. And, uh, it's, it's, I'm super excited about this product. So if you, um, want to check it out, you can go to centerforfaith.com. It's the first thing that pops up on the website, centerforfaith.com. And for the month of August, we are running a discount of, uh, $15 off of the digital leaders forum. It retails for $65. So right now for the month of August, you can get it for 50 bucks. So there's still a couple weeks left to, uh, sign up for the e-course, the digital leaders forum. My guest for today is a guy I've been wanting to talk to for, I would say, four years at least. Um, Hugh Halter is a church planter, but a very different sort of church planter. He is an entrepreneur. He's a different sort of entrepreneur. He is a pastor. He's a very different kind of pastor. He's written several books, including The Tangible Kingdom, which um, is kind of his... I don't want to say manifesto, but kind of his vision for what church can and should be. He's also written other books like Sacrilege, uh, Flesh is his most recent book, and several others you can find on his website, hughhalter.com. I, as I'll say in the podcast, whenever I talk about church or ecclesiology, uh, people often say, oh, so you've been reading Hugh Halter. And I'm like, actually, I know who Hugh Halter is, but I've never actually read any of his books. And people usually are a little bit stunned when they hear that because apparently, apparently, when I talk about church, it's very similar to the way Hugh Halter not only talks about church, but has been doing church for the last 20 years. And I so enjoyed this conversation. I don't know if you're going to enjoy it or not. I think you probably will. I think you'll love it, actually. But for me, this conversation showed me that I'm not completely insane or maybe both Hugh and I are insane. And that's a, that's a very likely possibility. In any case, I enjoyed talking to Hugh about his journey in the church and in the kingdom of God, especially what he's been doing recently in his, well, I'm just going to stop there. You're going to hear all about it. Please welcome to the show for the first time, hopefully not the last time, the one and only Hugh Halter. 
live on Theology in the Raw. Actually, we are not live. We're recording this, and this conversation is happening probably a few weeks before you are listening to it. But anyway, <laughs> that's the podcast world, right? Uh, I am here with my new friend, and um, I don't even know how to refer to you, Hugh. I mean, almost like a uh, a mentor, but not in a sense, like <laughs> a, a brother from another mother. Who uh, there's, there's through... a lot of other words people have used for me. I could give you some of those. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm here with Hugh Halter, and uh, let, let me just quickly begin by saying, whenever I talk about church to other people, I often get the response, oh, so you must be reading a lot of Hugh Halter stuff. And I actually uh, haven't. <laughs> My thoughts on church and discipleship and the kingdom of God and everything um, has not been f- just simply drawn from Hugh's stuff. But apparently, Hugh, um, we have similar ideas of what the church can and should be. So why don't we start with um, just who you, for those who don't know Hugh Halter, give us a quick introduction of who you are, and maybe that can lead us into a conversation about what you've been doing with church and church planning over the last several decades, really. Sure. Well, first of all, Preston, great to finally meet you. I've heard of you often, and uh, I've been mentored by you from a distance on quite a few issues, so good to finally hang with you on the phone. Um, yep, I am Hugh Halter. Uh, I don't <laughs> think that means much of anything but um i probably got known you know i kind of came out of the woodwork about 10 years ago with a book called the tangible kingdom that uh was kind of a story of what we were doing with an alternative way of doing church and uh, that kind of came out right when a lot of contemporary missional conversation was happening some mates from australia alan hirsch mike frost and others were beginning to write about the nature of the missionary church and We, you know, a lot of that was philosophical, theological, and our story came out as a practical look at a different way of doing church. And it just kind of, for whatever reason, it took off. And then I found myself flying all over the world Hmm. telling our story, which honestly, I didn't think was that big of a deal. But, um, you know, I think our country needed some different looks of church, you know. And so that, you know, that's what we've been doing. We planted a church in Portland, Oregon back in the 90s. Uh, Then we moved to Denver and did the Tangible Kingdom church plant story. And uh, now we are in the kind of north of St. Louis, a little town called Alton, Illinois, and our third sort of travels in the church world. And this one will look probably completely different than the first two. So that's who I am. I have penned some books. I hate writing. Really? Um, but I, yeah, I really do. And I, I don't even like speaking, which is, <laughs> I do those two things mostly, but it's just, you know, there's things that just keep you up at night to where you have to say something. And so, you know, whatever I've written is generally related, you know, even the church planting stuff, I don't really get jazzed about church planting. I think it's the hardest, most miserable thing you can be called to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love lost people coming to faith, you know? And so if that works, then you have to plant churches. So the church becomes, you know, something that you begin to grow out of the fruit of people finding faith in Jesus. So, you know, in some ways I say I've been stuck with the church planting thing or the the church thing, but I love the church and uh, I love what it could be. It just right now, it's really difficult, as you know. Well, why don't you give us a let's drill down a little deeper into uh, ecclesiology? I don't need to define that. My audience is 
super smart. They they know what that means. But um, what? Uh, yeah, give it just. Let's go a little bit deeper into your ecclesiology review of the church. Maybe even contrasting with how you maybe grew up or the models you came out of, and now I don't even like using the term model, sure. but the the. the what the the shape of church the 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 focus of church um, what does it mean to be a missional church give, give us a little more of a in depth look at yep. yeah your ecclesiology sure well I, I mean first of all you know your listeners should know I I grew up in a normal church Nazarene evangelical church I came to faith because I was sneaking out of the Sunday school because I loved hearing sermons so I was in fifth grade and pastor preached a sermon, I responded, walked the aisle. So I did the normal traditional thing um, very early on. So I'd say I was very much blessed by a traditional look of church. Um, But as I got married and adopted a son named Ryan, Ryan had really severe epilepsy. And he was having, you know, in those early days, 20 grand mal seizures a day, every day without a break. And uh, it got so bad, I had to actually leave seminary. I was two years into my MDiv program and we just couldn't manage life because I was probably an hour of sleep a night. And, you know, that disability with Ryan changed everything because we literally couldn't leave our home. You know, I was, I had to go back to a house painting trade and yet we just had this burning desire to see people come to faith and form community. So all, all we had was our house and a few extra hours with, you know, a little bit of energy. And so we did, we started to, to get pretty intentional about what we did with people and pretty soon the house filled up. And then we, we basically just taught people to do what we were, were doing. So early days, you know, I guess I was trying my hand at house church, but I, there wasn't even any literature on house church at that time. So I just thought, well, we're just doing small, small church, although a lot of people were coming to faith, you know, so you know, that story began to change the way I viewed ecclesiology. Um, you know, oftentimes when I talk to pastors about, you know, the state of the church, that most most leaders know it's not good right now. Every denomination is on the decline, pretty rapid decline. So, you know, when people are going, well, what's the church supposed to be? Do we have to go back to kind of missiology? Alan Hirsch, a great uh, kind of contemporary theologian, missiologist, said uh, usually we start with ecclesiology that's very connected to our theology. So we're either reformed or we're Arminian or we're whatever. And then we try to get people to do missiology. So we literally lead with ecclesiology and theology and then try to get people to do missiology. Alan says, when we start to think about church in our day, you have to go, you have to begin with Christology. You have to start with Jesus again. Uh, and not just, you know, what he did on the cross. You start with his humanity, how he lived in the world. And if you settle the issue of Christology, in other words, if anybody would say, I will, no matter what is going on, I will let Jesus decide what I do with my day, then Jesus will immediately take you to the second role, which is missiology. He'll say, hey, let's, let's go do something today. And let's go talk to people and bless people and love people. And then eventually, as you're on mission with Jesus, he will begin to reframe theology. Hmm. And then eventually, he'll build his ecclesiology. So it's almost the the reverse sort of way that we would think about church. We try to plant churches, which is essentially sermon teaching times. Yeah. But most of our Christians in America 
they've never really done the missiology. They don't go with Jesus. And so when we start talking about what is the missional church, all we're talking about is a group of people that wake up in the morning and go, Lord, you can do whatever you want with me today. And then church becomes an outgrowth of what is happening in people's lives, not something you lead with. So in all of the churches that we've started, we literally framed the ecclesiology later. Hmm. You know, we didn't even have names for what we were doing. There was no church name. There was no website. There was just people that were coming to faith. And we would disciple our friends and then fill up houses with people that were doing the same thing. And and then eventually, then you start going, oh, we've got lots of communities and people want to see each other. So then we would begin to, to frame con- sort of the congregationalizing of the mission fruit, if you, if you will. That's fine. Yeah. though, you know. It makes so much more sense, and it does seem to reflect the, um, I don't know, I, and we, you know, there's there's prescriptive and descriptive in the New Testament, you know, is the early church in the New Testament the, the way the church should always be, or is it just simply what happened, and I think it's probably yep. somewhere in the in the middle, and I, I, sometimes those categories are a little too artificial, but I mean, what, what you're saying seems to really reflect what you see in the New Testament, you have the gospel going forth, the word of God going forth, some people embracing it, and then because we are communal beings, they gather together, and then they, uh, because of Jesus, they break bread, drink wine, uh, and because yeah. they want to grow in their faith, they study the apostles' teaching, and then they pray together. And it's, it just feels very organic and stripped down, um, and yet yep. it doesn't seem that complicated. So what's your... Um, so what complicates it? Well, yeah, and I, there's so many different directions I want to go here, and I, and I do this often on the podcast, but I I want to I want to um, really seize our time because I have Hugh Halter on the show, and not not just me st- talking about these you know ideas that I haven't really worked out. What, what what tell us about the first church plant? See, there I go again, church plant. Tell us about the first city, the, your time in Portland when you had um, a church grow out of everything you're talking about, for, for lack of better terms, evangelism, discipleship, um, God's spirit moving forth, people coming to Jesus, people wanting to walk together, and all of a sudden now you start meeting maybe once a week, probably on a Sunday, maybe there's some teaching. What, tell us about that first experience of um, letting the, well, the church the flow more one, organically. Yeah, totally. I mean, the first one was literally born out of, I, I was working for Youth for Christ, so I was hanging out with high school kids, football coach, you know, hanging out with all kids that are outside the church, and a lot of them were coming to faith. And back in those days, the model was you try to plug those kids into a local church. And we tried that. So, you know, early days, I wasn't even thinking about church leadership or planting a church. Um, I just loved seeing, you know, brand new people come to faith. But the problem was whenever we would try to put these kids into local churches, they would just get their, you know what, handed to them. Mm-hmm. and they would get so judged or so ostracized. A lot of our kids were African-American, so mm-hmm. we started to go, oh, white people don't always want black people in their youth groups. And so it was, it was more of a tension point. I just was like, wow, the church doesn't want the people that we're reaching on mission. And so finally my wife and I just said, screw it. Let's just start some sort of a community for these people that we've already seen come to faith. And then those relationships began to grow because some of their parents started to come around and then it was our neighborhood, you know? Mm -hmm. So it it was, you know, usually Cheryl and I would intentionally give up three to seven meals a week. That was like an intentional rhythm. We said, let's just eat with people and let's just ask them how they're doing. And then nobody was doing well. (laughs) 
So, you know, we would just start to love on them and have more dinners. And on about the 30th dinner, Mm. you know, they'd start to share things spiritually. And then they'd ask us questions. And we'd say, you know, I don't know if it'd be of interest to you, but every other Thursday night we meet at the house with people that are just trying to figure out faith and life. And we usually pray for each other. And so we would we would make an invitation, but it was after a lot of what we call incarnation or mm-hmm. life with people. Um, but we, we did always have that kind of that thing in our house every other Thursday night. Um, so it wasn't every week, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so twice a month we'd have kind of that Jesus time. And that seemed to be enough, you know, that on those off weeks, it was more like we were on. It just gave us more time to throw a lot of parties and hang with people. And, um, so, you know, our original story was that we just knew that if we don't relate with people, we have no way that we're going to be able to proclaim to these people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, you know, I wrote a book later called Flesh, which was trying to help Christians understand the power of the incarnational life. That Jesus didn't just come to die for sins, but he literally came to teach us how to be human again in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if he did it, then we got to do it. Or because he loved to do it with people, we get to do it, right? I yeah. mean, so John 1, it says this word becomes flesh and he, he dwells in the neighborhood. And because he did that, we were able to perceive the glory of God. So I always, I always say in the text we're in now in America, our street cred is so bad as a Christian movement, be it tying it to Trump or tying it to anti-refugees or, oh, you guys don't let women teach in your churches. I mean, you can go down the list of all the things. Oh, and by the way, this is how you guys have generally treated the gay community. Mm -hmm. We've got eight to 12 major blows against the street cred of the evangelical church right now. And that's showing people what God is like to them. So Jesus, I think, would go, he would come in and in the midst of all that, we go, no, let me give you a different picture of God. Hmm. And he's, you're going to figure out who God is because you're going to watch me be different than all that stuff you see tied to me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I'm teaching evangelism, which is really the front end of a church plant, I go evangelism is not teaching or telling people something they've never heard before. It's literally changing their assumptions about what they think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way we're going to change the assumptions is we have to be different type of people that represent, literally, not stick up for God, but represent Him, act yeah. just like He would act on the neighborhood. So that's that's a long answer to that question, but no, that's good. It's critical. What? So that was your first um, your your first stab at this was not even really trying to do it. You were just being a Christian, reaching people, and it sort of organically grew out of that. Now. Fast forward to, let's just skip over Denver. Let's go to um, north yep. of St. Louis where you're at now. I, I, I would imagine your, well, I, I don't know. I'll ask you. I mean, ha, has anything really changed? What have you added or taken away or refined to your sort of view of, and I'm just going to use the phrase church planning with using that as yep. broadly as I possibly can. Because when people hear that, they think, okay, you, you raise a quarter million dollars, you find a staff, you go in. You start meeting with people, and in one year, you launch church. And what that means is your first Sunday yeah. service, and now churches began. What you're saying that that, yeah, I mean, you've already kind of said how how you know you you would kind of maybe re reframe that whole thing. But yep. um, so tell us about your church now, and how has it maybe changed, shifted, or 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 maybe stayed the same since you know from the last ten years? Yeah, well, there's there's definitely some similarities, but this is way different. This this was a total curveball after the. 
the tangible kingdom story in Denver. Um, you know, I resigned from that after about 14 years and Ryan, we finally found this assisted living center for Ryan out here in this little town called Alton, Illinois. So we're just 20 minutes North of St. Louis. And, um, so we brought Ryan out here six years ago. And so that was the first time Cheryl and I had ever been able to do our life without his kind of constant disability. So it was a huge breath of fresh air for the whole family and Ryan loved it out here, but you know, we would fly in and visit this little town. Um, people have heard of Ferguson. We're about nine miles just North of Ferguson. Wow. Um, okay. about 40% of the, the population here in Alton is African American. It's very, very poor. It used to be, three times the size. It's roughly about 30,000 people right now. It's right on the Mississippi river, kind of a beautiful little river town, but, um, it had lost most of its industry. So the average family income in Alton is right around $22,000. It's, uh, wow. extremely poor. I just, you know, it's the hood, but it's not like what you would see right down the middle of downtown St. Louis. It has the same demographics, crime issues, all that, but it feels more like a town. So we would, we'd fly in and visit this little place and we were, we were taken by the beauty of it, but we're like, holy cow, why is everything seemingly boarded up? Hmm. Uh, we found out later half the homes are slumlord owned and, you know, we, so we just were kind of intrigued by, it. you know, the first church plant was really for us more inner city, multi-ethnic, uh, this felt like that to us. And, and yet we're living on a four acre horse ranch in Colorado kind of enjoying the spoils of, of, you know, I had resigned from leading the church. So it was kind of our first break. I bought my wife some horses and, huh. you know, we're kind of loving life, but on probably the 10th trip in my wife and I were talking to a gal who had, she was our waitress. And I, I asked her, what do young people do in this town? And she goes, Oh, most of them just do drugs now. And we chatted with her a little bit longer and walking out of this little Italian bar, my wife goes, why don't we just move here and see if we can do something to help the town out? Hmm. And it was kind of a, you know, it was one of those weird moments where like I knew sh that she was sniffing something the Lord was laying down. And I was too, I just didn't want to leave Denver. I was, I didn't want to do it again. You know, I didn't want to start over. And if you've ever been to Denver, it's just like a, a big Boise, right? It's just a yeah. playground. So I was like, I don't, I want to enter in. I'd rather just be a consultant and speak and go home and hang out in the barn, you know, but <laughs> so Cheryl and I got in a bit of a fight on the sidewalk. She's like, no, seriously. Like, and I was like, well, number one, I just bought you a ranch. I just got you horses. <laughs> like there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't do this. And long story short, we went back home, had a, a talk with our two daughters who were, one was just newly married. One was engaged and the entire family except me said, yeah, let's go do another, they, you know, the way we framed it, let's go, let's go on mission again as a family. And, you know, I was the last one to hold out, but eventually I just, you know, couldn't handle it. So we all came out here literally as a family on mission going, okay, let's try to do something to help the town. I was not thinking about a church plant. Um, I would just walk the streets. We, we all bought houses within about six blocks right in the downtown area. And, uh, I would kind of walk and pray and, uh, tried to buy, you know, you couldn't find literally think about this Preston town of 30,000. There was no coffee shop. There was no breakfast joint. There was no place that people just hang out. And so I finally said, 
I'm just going to start a coffee shop. So I tried to buy a little gas station and renovate it all of Portland, Oregon style. And that deal fell through. And um, I remember having coffee with Cheryl at home. I said, okay, fine. Let's just not do anything for a year. Let's just pray. And she was like, that's a good idea. And then it was literally two hours later, I get a call from a guy named John, who I only had one lunch with before. And he said, hey, come to my house. I'll, I want to take you on a drive to show you some places around Alton that I own. And uh, he pulled up in front of an old federal post office right in the middle of downtown, right next to City Hall. It's this beautiful, ornate, you know, federal building. And uh, he goes, what do you think about it? And I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's beautiful. He goes, well, I'm glad you like it. I feel like I'm supposed to give it to you. Wow. And he goes, I think you, you'll know what to do to help our town. And I literally said, no, I was like, John, I don't, I don't want it, you know? <laughs> and he, he gave me the key and he goes, just keep the key. If you really don't want it, uh, give it back to me in a month or two. And so we got the family in the building and within 10 minutes, my kids were like, no brainer, dad. Let's, hmm. let's make the living, let's make the living room for our city. Let's make a place of connection and let's provide what they don't have. So we did, we started, I think we're the largest non-chain coffee shop in the Midwest. Wow. We can seat 500 people and, uh, it's an all day brunch cafe. And then we're the premier event space in our town. It's, it's just unbelievable building with, and, uh, Strangely, I did get a bunch of funding from people I didn't know. So we took about a year, renovated it, and we are the place that everybody meets in our town. So government meetings, reconciliation meetings. And then out of that, we've gotten so much street cred. I mean, I oftentimes tell church planners, if I had come into this town to plant a church, I would have got the middle finger by everybody, including the, the church leaders. Hmm. But if the Lord knows what he wants to do missiologically in our cities and I'm walking the streets and the Trinity is going, Hey, let's tell Halter to do a coffee shop and an, and an events joint and a brunch cafe. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a cool thought that the Lord knows a better way to enter hmm. relationships. than we oftentimes do. Right. And we do, we, we try to enter as a pastor or a church and Jesus didn't do that. You know, Jesus entered as a person who worked amongst people. And so long story short, Preston, we've been in business about a year and a half and we've had to, we've had to tell the newspapers to stop writing articles about us because it's getting so weird. Wow. And, you know, we've got nine employees, but out of that, we, you know, we say our, we're an incubator for good works. So Post Commons is the name of the business, but our nonprofit is called Lantern Network. And it's just, we incubate good work. So we, anybody that wants to help people, including people that don't know Jesus, we say, let us help you start new businesses, start social entrepreneurship. And thirdly, if you just want to start a missional community. So there are some Christians that go, I just want to reach my neighborhood. So mm -hmm. um, we've incubated now, um, five little individual businesses. So it's not a big story. We're just kind of getting off the runway. Um, we've got three missional communities that are beginning to gather just kind of more neighborhoodish. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to keep going on the side of that. We have a little, I guess you would call it a church missions community called side door. And we call it that because everybody that's a part of that comes in the side door. 
um, of the building. We don't, I don't think we'll ever have a public worship service okay. because I think public worship services in most cases draw Christian people. And right now I'm not so sure that the standard Christian in this kind of Midwestern part of the culture is going to do very well with the non-Christian people that we're relating with and are, are gaining so much street cred. So yeah. our side door is essentially like a core group community, but all we do in that is mission formation and helping them to start kind of little micro communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in some ways we're, we're really discipling kind of Navy SEALs, people that are going, look, I'm going to let Jesus tell me what he wants me to do and I'm going to go try to do it. So we're more a network of missionaries or missional communities, but we have, you know, we're sustained financially from a business perspective. And that's really kind of our missionary positioning in the neighborhood is we're business people. And all the, the Jesus stuff is subversive and quiet. And um, right now it's, it's been a blast. I've, I've never felt like we had so much favor as I do in the story. It's almost more trying to manage what we're going to do because we have so many opportunities with people. Oh. Now, so do you so, own, do you own and run like the coffee house, the brunch kitchen, the event center, the whiskey society? I mean, is that all these things that are happening or do you lease it out to other businesses? Well, initially we housed it all ourselves, but now we're actually trying to turn them into for-profit businesses. That's another thing, you know, when you think about, that scripture where the righteous prosper, the city will rejoice. Yeah. We're really trying to take that seriously, almost like the early Trappists that would, through enterprise, they would bless the local cities they were in. Um, so, you know, right, right now, honestly, nonprofits are not that good of news to cities because they don't pay taxes. Right. So initially we started, you know, a really, a really good coffee house, but our main coffee manager, who's one of our missionaries, wants to start a roastery. So as we're processing that, we go, well, let's, let's move you from nonprofit in our bucket to a for-profit. And so we're going to try and do that even with our kitchen, turn that into its own restaurant. So essentially they would be leasing from the nonprofit, even though right now the nonprofit will probably give them free lease. It's basically, we're trying to do anything we can to incubate Mm -hmm. things that are going to employ more people or, give them relational connection with people outside the church. Yeah. That's so, so here, here's where we, I think our, our minds and hearts kind of intersect a little bit. I mean, you're doing, this sounds like kind of like a dream. I've talked about this on a podcast um, a, a couple of times, I think. Um, but I've always envisioned and, and taken my, my cue from the kind of business as mission movement. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but it sounds like you're doing what missionaries kind of figured out, 10, 20 years ago, that in, in a lot of cultures, a growing number of cultures, if you come in as a self or a, a supported missionary planting a church, people look at you like, what is that? That's like, weird. Who are, that's, yeah. What do you, so when I'm at work all yep. day, people are paying you to kind of walk around the market. Like, what does that even mean? That's not attractive to me. Exactly. So that, um, you know, I've got a cousin who's who's been in Mauritania for, or used to be for a number of years, and he says it, it would it wouldn't even get off the ground if he came in here as a missionary. So he started a restaurant, all this stuff. And, and that seems to be like missionary. They, like that used to be radical. Now it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of the way you need to do missions in most countries. It, basically is that, I mean, I don't want to simplify, but are you basically drawing on that kind of business as mission um, model and yep. saying, Hey, we're in post 
Christian America and what's happening here is not too different than what's going on around the world? Yeah, exactly. And that's why when I when I explain our story, people go, oh, it's super weird. And I go, well, yeah, but it's just weird right now in America. It's yeah. pretty normal all over the place. Um, okay. And it's it's been norm, literally normative for church leadership for centuries. The, hmm. the idea that you would grow a congregation, that the congregation would pay you a full salary and benefits, we have to realize that's that's less than a hundred-year-old story in the history of the world prior to that. It was people more like St. Benedict of the 6th century who started the Trappists. Where they were the only cloistered order that did not beg for money because they made so much of it. And their sort of uh, monastic motto was Ora et Labora, which meant pray and work. They were the ones that uh, were the first ones to kind of say, hey, there's no divide between the sacred and the secular. Hmm. So everything you do, especially enterprise, is as unto the Lord. Uh, Rodney Stark later on, uh, who's kind of a missiologist, said it was the the monastic leaders, really speaking of St. Benedict and the Trappists of the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries that, that literally funded the, the preliminary expansion of what would be the Reformation. They owned a third of England during the time of the Reformation. So it was the financial power of these cloistered sort of monks that literally got the story to us or at least preserved it. So, you know, we talk about marketplace planting. That's all we're saying is that your, your profile, not just your gimmick, but literally your way of life is that you live amongst the people doing what they do, you know, which obviously changes what church becomes. Church is not this hierarchical institution, but church now is going to operate as a family. Mm -hmm. And, so it's not going to be a single leader model of church. So not everybody's going to say, well, Hugh Halter is my pastor like they used to, which meant Hugh has to do everything for us. <laughs> now church, you know, if we literally do church like this, um, I'm going to give hours a week to the, the ministry functions that we might normally call ministry functions. But I'm going to have 30 other people that are all going to give 10 to 15 hours a week. So we literally do church as community. It takes the pressure off big time. And uh, it doesn't require as many church services for sure. Like we've yet to have one and uh, you know, are just beginning now after a year and a half to go, okay, what does it look like to begin to provide Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a, I guess, under one roof worship gathering. And we're not sure we will, we might actually have worship gatherings that are another part of what this network provides people. Yeah. So here, here's my dream or dream idea, I would call it a dream. Like, I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I always thought like, given the financial state of the church, the decline of Christianity and everything we're talking about now, what if you, what if your church plant was a coffee house by, you just bought a building, maybe get some investors, bought a building, um, turned it into a coffee house by day, a tap room at night. And then also in the times when those businesses aren't functioning, you can open it up to a, gathering place for, for believers, a gathering yep. place for nonprofit, whatever, yada, yada. Um, so that you are, your gathering place is completely integrated with the community. Um, you are providing a service both to the businesses. Maybe you can charge, maybe if you have a couple different businesses come in, um, maybe you can charge them, you know, 75% of what it would normally cost. I know in downtown Boise, it's incredibly expensive, like any downtown area. Yep. But man, if you got two different businesses operating here, you can probably, um, you know, um, 
you know, squeeze every ounce of time out of this building, you know, um, but then offer, you yep. know, bless these businesses, bless the community, um, also make it, you know, this is a public gathering place for, for believers. Um, would this, would something like this work? Am I just, I mean, it sounds kind of like what you're uh, doing. Well, in, in, you just described what we're doing okay. to the T and, <laughs> so and we work. have total control to give our building, like, for instance, you know, we've got a really beautiful basement part of this building. So it's 12,000 square feet total. 9,000 is the upstairs main area where you have events rooms and the coffee house rooms and a big kind of grand, you know, 25 foot ceiling foyer type of thing. And, but down below is this really cool kind of 3000 square foot. So I was thinking, well, I should try to monetize that, maybe do a shared office space Mm -hmm. concept. But the more we were talking with, uh, a lot of, you know, some of them were our barista staff that are not Jesus people, um, but also talking to other people that were like, there's not a place where young artists in our town can really just hang out. Hmm. And so we decided to to literally just donate the basement to the arts community here. Wow. And, you know, we will not make money, but we, we try to make our money through events primarily. Okay. We just barely cover the nine staff through the coffee and the food, but the events are where we can actually make profit. And so that profit we make there allows us to then go, okay, let's donate this space to, you know, and I would say none of the young artists that I've met know the Lord. Hmm. So to me, again, it's not a gimmick. It's just a way to bless them. And, and hopefully they see in us kind of a unique generosity that might, I hope it spurs some conversation, which it really has already. Um, but that's, you know, it's essentially how, how we think about business permission. We mm-hmm. remember when Paul would, would say, hey, and he's talking about a very unique context. He said, for you guys, I decided to work amongst you so as not to be a burden. Yeah, That's a, that's a missionary going, hey, I, you know, where other times Paul's appears that he's raising money or saying, hey, don't muzzle an ox or a workman's worthy of his hire type of thing. So Paul did seem to say, you know, you should try to help people that are essentially helping guide the community. But for him personally, he went into a unique context and went, and the le- the least amount of burden I can be on this thing, the better. Mm-hmm. And so he worked. I, I think that's what we're coming to in America right now. And I'm seeing in all the church plan networks that I'm kind of helping coach or influence everybody right now is looking to the marketplace, uh, not just planting, but even existing pastors are going, now, you know, I can still preach on the weekend. I don't need to get paid for that. And they're literally entering the workforce just because they want to be a missionary and relate to people again. That's a, yeah. it's very fascinating. I'm seeing that more, even, or even like a bivocational model or some, yep. um, you know, you have a few movements at least, or people like, like Fran, what Francis Chan is doing in San Francisco and others where, you know, yep. at least for Chan, there's, you know, zero money goes into the actual running of the, of the ministry of the church so that there's not a single ministry decision that's based on money or even affected by money. And I, I was super yep. attracted yep. to that um, for a while. I think now I, I do, because we, 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 I started something kind of like that. We're not a penny went in and, um, and maybe it was just my situation or whatever, but it couldn't, um, I, I don't know, I saw the need for, I think it can be good in most, not every, but most contexts to have some kind of financial release for some leaders to, um, 
to yep, to totally. lead. You know, from, I agree. Yeah, um, but that not in every kid. That's the thing. I don't think there's one strict model that for every context needs to be the norm. There needs to be some flexibility. For me, I was about to slip my wrist because I was just, I just yeah. it just put me over the top <laughs> because I'm already doing you know a full time and a half ministry where you yep. know e- even even the thought of trying to prepare put 20 minutes into preparation of a message or a talk or a teaching or to meet with one one more person that's part of the church was just like, it just put me over the edge. Um, but so, if I, so that's why I would say like, I, I do think we should fund leaders, but we've traditionally funded the pastor shepherd yeah. teacher role. I think biblically what Paul was really pushing for is that the apostolic, you know, just now within the missionary conversation, what we call the APES model of leadership based on Ephesians 4, mm-hmm. apostle, prophet, shepherd, teacher, you know, all that stuff. Paul would, I think, argue, and others that study that would say, we should be funding our apostolic evangelists, the ones that are out as the tip of the spear, which yeah. tend to be the entrepreneurial, um, because they do, they create a wake behind them. And the shepherd teacher roles oftentimes are the most natural to most of the body of Christ. So I would, I would say, I don't think in most cases you need to pay somebody to preach a sermon or even provide a worship set. Right. What you do need is you need to free up people that are discipling leaders who will be missionaries in their own context. So um, you almost need to fund coaches, trainers and coaches would, would be the funding element, I think, or, you fund the apostolic work. So we did have people that gave money. You know, we, we had to raise $600,000 to renovate the building. Mm-hmm. Um, we're three years in. I have yet to take a penny from this personally. So I actually am starting another paint job, you know, this week. So sometimes I travel and speak. Sometimes I'm painting the house. Um, sometimes, you know, so I have five or six buckets, but I personally am trying not to be a burden yeah. Even though I'm sort of the apostolic leader of this movement, um, my board has voted that I should be making income off of this at some point. We're, we're trying to, you know, maybe next year start to hive off a little bit. Um, and I, I think it's important that leaders have to have some sustainability, right? Right. Um, but that apostolic role oftentimes is a combination between fundraising, actual work, labor, you know, fee for service, if you will. Um, and mm-hmm. potential congregational support. But I think it can be a combination of those. It doesn't have to. I think when you settle on one, I'm going to make my full salary through a congregation. I think then, yeah, you get into some weird space where it begins to shut down the mission. What, what I, let's, let's, I want to keep focusing on the money thing. Because I've been t- thinking through this, I mean, for 20 years, really, but especially the last few years. And I, so I don't know if I'm, I'm contradicting myself or I have two competing interests. On the one hand, I love the idea of, and let's just call it ministry or a church, whatever, to be, I don't, I don't like it when any ministry decision is based on money on some level, which I don't care how, the, a, a traditional model of church, cast that as broadly as you want, and at the end of the day, yep. if your church is shrinking, that affects the budget, that affects the ministry, that affects everything. The whole thing could crumble if you preach one message and half the people leave, and at the end of the day, like you are making ministry decisions based on money, if you're really honest with yourself. So I want to, I want to free, you know, I often say, you know, how much does it cost to break bread, drink wine, study the Bible and pray together? You know, hope, hopefully that shouldn't yep. cost a lot. Um, but we've created a system where it does. It costs sometimes millions of dollars to be able to do that. Um, so I, I, I'm very yep. allergic to 
ministry being intertwined so much with money I, on the uh, on the flip side i'm also i don't like the kind of old school oh you're doing the lord's work so you have to um not make a lot of money while you go get your teeth pulled by your christian dentist and you have no problem with him <laughs> making half a million it's like well wait a minute <laughs> Like that just doesn't make sense. Like, why are some we we will say all vocations are unto the Lord? Why is it totally fine for some vocations filled by Christians to the goal, the success is I made a ton of money. I, if you have a Christian real estate agent, you would say, oh my gosh, he is killing it. He's he's making two million a year. Da da da. You know, he's giving ten percent, whatever. But like, you have no problem with that. But if you let's just say you in your situation, as a, you're an entrepreneur now, what if you really started killing it? What if you're making half a million a year and you're being very generous, whatever? I think people would be like, "Wait a minute, is that okay?" Like, he's a pastor, he's a minister. So I don't, I don't know. I, I want to at least be consistent with how we think about and value Christians' money entrepreneurship, ministry, all that stuff. So I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to sort out, am I contradicting myself? Am I, you know, being money grubby no, over I mean, here? I, I don't know. Oh, I think it's, it's a normal question. I think it's a context thing, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we're part of a ministry network where, uh, you know, a group that coached us is out of Birmingham called Common Threads. There's about 100 missionaries in that movement that, again, do very similar they start coffee shops and other businesses, but they also buy up tons of homes in the very, very poorest parts of Birmingham. Well, their community, they just asked everybody in that community to take a vow of simplicity where nobody lives on more than double the poverty line. So an average family of five to seven, um, three to seven, if you will, most of them are living off of less than $3,000 a month. And they, they make that commitment as a, essentially a neo-monastic okay. movement. That, you know, so what we've said here in Alton is we're going we're gonna to ask our people to make a downward, what we call a cruciform mm-hmm. uh, sort of model of their life. So we didn't, we, we didn't feel comfortable asking everybody to make that level of commitment, but we said, would you be downwardly mobile? So my wife and I, during that, we sold a larger house that we bought. Interestingly, we bought a beautiful 4,000 square foot Victorian home for $260,000, you know, coming from Denver where we're selling a really kind of a, kind of cool, but relatively crappy four acre ranch for about a million dollars. We come into this town. We're like, Oh my gosh, we have, we can buy anything we want for the first time in our lives. We actually had money. And so we did, we bought, you know, kind of a higher end home, but, you know, and it wasn't that much, but we still felt like, no, we could downsize. So we, we just bought a house last year to downsize, still a beautiful house. Mm-hmm. But we're, again, we're, if I don't do that, then I've got to go figure out how to maybe take a little bit more money out of the movement or spend more time on the road speaking, but I want to be here. So we're constantly re-architecting our financial scenario to where we can simplify in Denver, Colorado, we, we had to have 10 grand a month just to survive. Hmm. Um, it's probably more than that now because it's just booming. All of a sudden in Alton, we're, we're trying to learn how to live off $4,000 a month. Okay. So it's more of an internal ethos that you create in your movement mm-hmm. that's contextual. If, if I made a ton of money at the post and all of a sudden we had hundreds of thousands of profit, I do feel like it would be inappropriate because, again, we're trying to represent – 
where the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So if we make profit, we feel like it's for the city. And I do feel like there there is a cap. There should be a cap in every context where you are a normal person in an environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a commitment we've made. Even if we kill it, we're gonna we're gonna give that away, and we're gonna use it for kingdom stuff. But what? Let me uh, push into that just a little. Not even push back, but just push into like what? So what? What? Let's just say you started getting more successful and everything, and that success. It's one thing for your success to hinder somebody else's success. I mean, that's where, you know, I don't know, I'm not an economist, but that's where, you know, unchecked capitalism can be destructive and, you know, driven by greed and everything. But what if your success actually spilled over and helped, was, was a blessing to others in the community? Say, say you were successful and then you started two or three other businesses and more employment and now the economy of the city and, and you're being, Let's just say you're saying, you know what, I'm committed to give away 50% of my income if I'm making more than, you know, 150000 a year yep. or whatever. Well, let's just say you're making 500000 a year, and you're like, I'm still going to give away half. Well, you're still making a lot of money after that. But yeah, you're, exactly. Um, so I, I don't know. Like I, I guess would it be like accurate I, for, for Preston, you? To... I, I pray for millions. I really do. Because <laughs> I see the power of finance in yeah. poor, blighted areas. I, yeah. I mean, the, the two things you need to revive a town are great people and money. Yeah. So you still need money, but your average church in America is spending 90% of all of their income in house yes, on pastors and yeah. buildings. So we've inverted the tithe. We literally teach the tithes to try to get people to bring all their money in. But yeah. we invert it. It used to be the clergy would take a 10% rake off the top, you know, yeah. and give 90% to the poor. We're So yeah. I, I hope that the future of funding is that we do, we make so much money through good benevolent enterprise that not only are are our leaders sustainable, but we're able to actually immediately give it to the needs of our cities. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've often thought like, I I don't, I've never, I was raised in a really poor family. My uh, parents were divorced at 10. My wife or my wife, my mom worked three jobs just to put food on the table. I was on my 16th birthday. I was literally working at, uh, in California that I don't know if it still is that the, you can, you had to be 16 to, to work for like, you know, legally. And on my 16th birthday, I worked eight hours at Burger King, you know? So it's just, it's been in my blood and my wife was raised missionary family and everything. So we have a natural, like we don't have, I don't know. I just, I haven't struggled with like a desire to for, for more stuff and more income. But what I do desire, I would love to be financially freed up to do quote unquote ministry without, you know, the, thought of, oh, yep. but I still need to put food on the table. And yes, I'll go speak here, but I need to get paid because I need to eat. You know, I would love to, exactly. you know, I've had people around the world say, hey, can you come in and help us sort through questions of sexuality? And I'm like, yeah, but that's going to cost like thousands of dollars for me to fly over there. Um, either I leave my family for two weeks or I bring them. If I bring them, then that's a huge price. I would love to be financially freed up to just say, sure. Yeah, no problem. Because I, I, I have that kind of financial freedom to be able to do the Lord's work, you know, um, uh, without, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm constantly wrestling with the, the ministry money kind of question. So, um, I, I you know, I, I, almost... I think every, I think everybody is honestly, I, I think even pastors that take a full salary wrestle. Yeah. I oftentimes tell people there's not really a better way for funding and there's nothing unbiblical about taking a full salary from a church, sure. but wherever you take money, there's strings attached. That's the bottom line. And if you take money from a congregation, you will feel constrained 
and at times you won't pastor them or tell them what you know you should and you know and if you make your money from business or you then there's strings attached if, if i make money at starbucks i got to do a good job working for starbucks so yeah. um you know it's almost like there's not a perfect way to fund yourself but there are more options than there used to be that's what i oftentimes tell the bivocational or co-vocational or pure you know marketplace leader is pick pick the life that you like you're you're you and i are probably very similar precedent we probably enjoy five or six different buckets because it's yeah. kind of fun to do something different every day um but i also don't like the pressure of having to get on a plane and leave my context right and as i'm getting older and you know grandkids are popping out i i have to constantly re-architect the life that i feel like i want and what i feel like the lord wants for us for me right now it's uh, trying to get, you know, I used to be 15 days a, a month speaking somewhere. I'm wow. trying to get that to two, two to three days a week. Well, that that means I have to adjust where I'm making money. So when somebody walked into the post office the other day and said, do you know any house painters? Huh. I, you know, I, I initially was like, no, oh, crap. But I said, <laughs> well, let me go take a look at it for you. You know, so yeah. I start, you know, something I don't really enjoy. I'll be honest with you. Painting yeah. is not my favorite thing anymore, but I go, well, looks like maybe that's the way God's going to provide for this week's income. And then I'll worry about next week's next, you know, next week. Sometimes because we have a nonprofit, people do like what we're doing. So occasionally I get just a pure financial donation and I'm able to receive that because we have a nonprofit and, you know, there's some for-profit buckets, there's non-profit buckets, and there's my personal work buckets. And I kind of enjoy that. You know, most entrepreneurs kind of like that. So Yeah, I do too. I, but it, I'll, yeah. I'll be honest with you, Preston, I never know where we're going to make income two, more than two weeks in advance. Oh, and right. it's been like that for 25 years. Huh. And, you know, even though I essentially oversee a building that's worth about a million bucks right now, I, I can't benefit from that personally because it's it's the nonprofit's building. So yeah. I live by faith as a 52 year old, just like I did when I was 25. I literally have no idea how, you know, where it will come from a year from now, but God's been faithful. Wow. You know, we're, we're here by God's grace. That's and, awesome. you know, we've, most of the time we've been relatively broke because our son's disability costs us almost everything, but somehow we're here and what God wants to do in the city he provides for so he gave me a building and he gave me 600 grand in about a year's time because that's what god wanted to do and i, I always tell people stop trying to figure out how you're going to sustain life or you know figure out the perfect balance the first question christology is jesus what do you want to do in this town or this neighborhood and if you can align yourself with what jesus would do god will provide like he's no dummy He's not going to waste a willing servant and a really cool entrepreneurial idea. And, and I will tell you this, there's a lot of church people that are so done giving their money to just the weekend services. They're looking for kingdom entrepreneurial work. I think people will be surprised that funding will come in for, you know, some alternative things that we're doing on behalf of the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm almost kicking myself for skipping over your Denver experience, the tangible kingdom thing. Let's go back there and uh, go back in your in Hugh Halter's life. You leave Portland to go to Denver. Tell us about that whole part of your journey. Well, that was I was just working for a missions agency at the time, and, and we were basically traveling the world, t 
trying to teach people how to do missionary church just like you would overseas locally. So we, I, we were the only, I think we were the only non-attractional church plant training. So we really went there as a travel hub, but we all, always lived it out. You know, so I, w- I was back house painting. And then uh, again, we started filling up the house, but then we codified what we were doing that was creating all the evangelistic sort of fruit. Um, and that became the tangible kingdom. There were the, the title of the book were, was basically reflective of three rhythms of life that we asked people to live in order to make the kingdom more tangible to people. And uh, so that's all that book was. It was kind of a rethink, um, but giving people simple handholds. Essentially, all we did, Preston, was we said we taught people a 2-1-1 rhythm of life. So in a given month, have two times a month where you you gather together and you read scripture and you pray, you take communion and do the Jesus Christian thing. Um, On your other weeks, throw a party. We just, Acts 10, the power of of just relating with people as a normal human being. So just throw lots of parties. And then the third circle is just blessing. So it was create places of belonging for people. Uh, do things that help you just be with Jesus and then go bless people. So very simple. Mm-hmm. But we said, if you're going to be a part of our kind of neo-monastic movement, you have to commit to those three rhythms of kingdom life. And so that ended up being kind of a 10-year experience. We wrote a eight-week uh, journal experience called the TK Primer that I think we've sold. I think we're right around 300,000 of those. Wow. And that became the tool that we use within existing congregations to begin to help renovate them back to missionary lifestyle. Mm. And uh, so in a lot of ways, what we're doing in Alton, we go, we go back to those rhythms, of course, mm-hmm. at the, at the kind of the missional community level. Um, back in the Denver day, there was no business element though. You know, okay. I was still house painting, but we, we were not thinking about, we weren't running a coffee shop. We were, I guess, uh, taking a more traditional approach to just working and then creating a network of these missionary communities. So you weren't paid by the church at that point. You were bivocational or? Were no, you... I've, I've actually never been paid by the church okay. in 25 years. You know, we, we've taken, we got up to about a $2,000 a month stipend in the Denver story, but that was after five years. Okay. Um, so it was always a combination of raising funds and house painting, if you will. Okay. Um, as you know, the books come out, so you, you know you, you begin to make some money as a consultant, but you don't make much off books. No, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> That's a, people don't understand like that. that. I mean, maybe 10, 15 years ago, from what I hear, you can make a decent amount, but now, unless you're in the top kind of one percent, which neither you yeah. or I are of, of authoring, you know, you can't really make living. You can. I mean, it's 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 awesome. I I never thought I'd get a penny for writing. I just love. I unlike you, I actually love writing and. The, th- yeah, the idea like of when getting I got some to, like, money the sixty-seven dollar is... checks. I was like, "Sweet, we can go out for dinner, <laughs> yeah. go out for a burger." Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that was more. That in was, Den- you know, that was that was the story. You know, and right now that book, that tangible kingdom book, is still kind of, I guess, the underpinning of everything I would do. That was when I kind of unveiled kingdom theology as I was reading it through Dallas Willard. That's okay. when I got a theological rework, um, and. Uh, and I still would say when people go, okay, where should I start with your books? I always go start with the tangible kingdom and then okay. kind of work your way through from there. Because I think unless you have a kingdom theology rework, 
I don't think you'll end up being a very good missionary. Yeah. And I would read the divine conspiracy and other people that have written well on the kingdom. Yeah. What would you say to um, a pastor, a leader um, who is in a more traditional model who's listening, which might be 10% of my audience, so maybe a few hundred people right now are probably employed by a, a church. Maybe they're on formal non-paid staff or whatever. And, and may, maybe they're like, man, everything you're doing sounds great, but here I am, you know, to, I got to preach a sermon on Sunday. Yep. I've got to, and this is how I make my income. And, 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 and maybe they would sit me and push back on some of the things saying, well, no, we're still doing a lot of great stuff in a traditional model, all that stuff. So how, 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 yep. who, what would you say to somebody who is maybe in the traditional church system? Well, first thing I would say is just good job. You know, like I, I feel like any pastoral role, you are taking one for the team. Nobody ever calls you because they're having a great day. And they just want to tell you, I mean, you're, if you're in the box, in the church box, and you're serving people, I think uh, you should be applauded. Whether or not you think the church is doing much or whether or not you like your role, I would say um, thank you for caring for God's sheep. But I'd also say, you know, everybody knows now our, our world is changing, and the, the pastor, shepherd, teacher role is going to become the most frustrated role, um, especially when the church is not generally reaching new people. So I would just say, look up, you know, see, um, maybe, maybe think about your life in view of the APEST, you know, maybe it's a lot of great testing now on whether or not somebody is apostolic or prophetic evangelistic, more shepherd or teaching. If, if you take some of these assessments and you actually identify yourself more in the pastor shepherd teacher role, then I say you you might be in a perfect spot. So don't lament it, um, embrace it. Um, we're going to need all different forms and looks of church to get this thing done. Um, but right now we need more looks of of new wineskin. Um, so if you're in the old wineskin, if you will, um, remember God had a heart for both. He's you know He's trying to preserve both the old and the new. So um, if you feel like you're in your spot, then I'd say. Be content with it and just serve with joy. But if you are inside the box and you are constantly staring at the ceiling at night going, oh, I just feel like I'm missing something, be open to the fact that God is opening up a lot of new ways of life for you in ministry and potentially business and uh, and maybe have the guts to look up and begin to, to find some people who are doing different looks of church. Hugh, are you, do you find, I wanted to ask you this earlier, who are some other people, orgs, organizations doing something similar to what you're doing? And I ask because I've got a, a, a few people, but a, a friend up in the Seattle area who's doing pretty much what you're doing. And I, I was talking to him the other day and, and he's like, man, I just feel like, I, is anybody else doing this? You know, I'm like, actually, I think a, a, quite a few people are. So can you give us um, maybe, yeah, some, some similar organizations or people yep. that are doing well, something similar? I will say, um, just because of the amount of denominations that are calling me to process this, I would say this is like a growing tidal wave, like the water's going out right now. But I think probably in five to seven years, you will see almost every denomination having some stream for bivocational or business for mission. Hmm. But it's it's very early on. Um, but the groups that are already doing it, I, I usually point people to the Underground Network out of Tampa. 
uh, Brian Sanders just released a book called The Underground Church. And uh, in fact, the day I got the key to our building, I was actually flying out to speak and to be with the people in the underground. And I always tell people they they were ahead of us um, in a lot of ways to this Alton story. They actually coached us and they actually received our building for us and actually covered all my admin for a year. And so I started to see what they were doing. They're, they're a network of over 200 micro churches now. And they do really weird stuff with their money. They essentially have a huge shared office space, warehouse. And all they do is they would call it a radical empowerment model. Every person, they're trying to help them figure out what their passion is and then empower them. Um, so that network, which also includes a group out of Birmingham I mentioned called Common Threads, um, and within, if you, if you go browse around the Tampa Underground Network, you'll see seven, I think seven or eight sites now internationally and nationally. We're considered one of their movemental sites. So that's kind of the network that we're a part of because that's the closest thing we've been able to find to kind of this weird thing. Um, V3 is also a church planting network that I'm doing a marketplace cohort for. And V3 is very progressive on this as well. I, I would take a look at V3. Um, yeah, I just had, a, uh, Dan, I had Dan White Jr. on the podcast a few weeks ago. Yep, great. Yeah, so Dan, JR, um, I think they're going to be towards the tip of the spear on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, you know, honestly, one of the benefits, as you know, Preston, speaking, is you get to see a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. And I, w- I will tell you, I run into people that are doing what I just started to do, but they've been at it for 10 years in their cities. Um, they're all over the place, but you know, they're not known. They don't write books. Yeah. Um, but I could literally tell you a hundred people hmm. nationally that have literally went into to blighted downtowns and started buying up buildings and doing cool stuff and also reflect an essence of what church is in their yeah. environment. And then, I mean, so you're talking about kind of integrating ministry, entrepreneurship, um, more emissional, kingdom mindset. Yeah. But even beyond that, then you have a lot of churches and networks and movements doing more just kind of what you're doing in, in Denver, maybe more of a hyper simple, relationally driven, missionally driven yep. um, church rather than kind of more of an attractional, expensive model. So, I, I mean, from my yeah, vantage correct. point, it does seem like I. I if, yeah, anecdotally, I've got way less experience with this than you do, but it does. I, I would. It's not shocking when you say, "Man, there's a there's a lot more going on here." The kind of a tidal wave building that um, it will be more yep. prominent in five ten years. Yep, agreed. So, I mean, in all those settings, if that begins to emerge, you, we will all intuitively go back to that more pure missionary community type of a framework for church, mm-hmm. um, and I think that'll be a really great move for the church. I think that might be the only way that we're actually going to be able to relate with, with yeah. people around us that don't know Jesus. So Here's an, another byproduct, and we're, we're going to wrap things up in just a second, but um, he, I, I've often seen solid Christians who are in the marketplace, who are running successful companies, who are CEOs of you know, uh, you know, b- successful businesses, whatever, who can be kind of frustrated at the traditional model of church. You got some 25 year old seminary graduate running this thing. And then, you know, you're looking at, you know, the the CEOs of businesses saying like, man, I could really help you with (laughs) a lot here. And they're like, they kind of get the stiff arm, like, Oh no, you know, I'm the pastor, you know, just go ahead and sit and listen to my sermon, you know? And I I think this model 
can include, empower, and learn from um, people with all kinds of crazy, amazing gifts that have felt like there's no real place for me in the traditional church. I don't I don't want to attend this community group or whatever. Or I, you know, I, I, just, I don't fit in the programs that are being offered. The leadership kind of looks down upon me because I'm not a pastor. I don't have seminary training, but yep. man, I'm managing 500 people throughout the week in a $10 million budget. I think I do. Is there something I could give to the church, to the kingdom? I think your model can really empower um, a, a good number of people that have been sidelined by the church. Yeah. In fact, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll tell church planting specialists or denominational guys to go, you know, to get somebody funded to plant a church is very expensive and it takes a hard or long time to find that person. But you could save a lot of time and money if you just go find really great leaders and then teach them how to just lead missional community in their context. Because as soon as you, you take an, a CEO that's got 30 employees that has really done a great job loving those people, all he has to do is go, hey, anybody want to meet Tuesdays for lunch and just talk about life and faith? And they will fill up a, a boardroom. Yeah. And they're already right there doing what you would call the planting activity. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to think about planting businesses or planting micro communities or planting missional communities as opposed to the idea of planting a church. Yeah. Yeah. Church is literally something Jesus said, I build. So I go, okay, if Jesus said, I'll take that pressure. He does ask us to then build and plant. You know, we plant seeds. We plant gospel. We plant communities. That's way more doable for the average person, especially the really gifted leader. Uh, planting a church? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like anybody, anybody has done it. Yeah, that's like selling rocks in a gravel pit. But <laughs> I plant a really cool whiskey and theology night at my local saloon. Yeah, we can do that starting next week and it won't cost anything. So, all right. Last question on that note. Um, I'm a whiskey fan. You're a whiskey fan. What are your top five, uh, favorite whiskeys and why? Well, I've always been an Irish whiskey connoisseur because it was cheaper on occasion. My wife would let me take a hundred dollars and go buy as much whiskey as I could. So I learned I could get more bottles with Irish. <laughs> and I also liked the flavor profile better. And I have Irish in me. And so I initially started there. I am becoming a connoisseur of all, all fine, you know, fermented where it's a long time. I just appreciate the process. Yeah. But, uh, right now I'm having some fun, you know, I, I did some church planting stuff throughout the Caribbean. So I, for about three years, I was a rum guy, huh. you know, learning everything about rum. I'm kind of enjoying some nice tequilas uh, right now. For me, it's a health food option. I, I got too fat drinking beer and chocolate <laughs> milk. So uh, whiskey became my, my healthy alternative. Huh. Um, so wait, so, yeah. is, is whiskey healthier than beer like uh, calorie wise it's all same oh, calories isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely oh no 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 your your average beer is going to be 300 calories your average little spit of whiskey is going to be about 60 oh wow and so you're you're ultimately getting uh way longer enjoyment for way less calories and yeah. actually quite a bit less alcohol so um, you're able to avoid trouble that sometimes can happen around the alcohol issue. Sure. So for me, it's, it's more conversational. It's uh it's more of a connoisseur 
type of a drink than a beer. Beer, oftentimes, you just, you know. But I find when I have a whiskey with a, with a fellow, the conversations are much more, um, I guess, um, I don't know. They're just, they're safer. Huh. They they take longer. Yeah. Um, and people don't abuse the alcohol when, when you have a finer, finer whiskey in most cases. Yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah, you get a cheaper whiskey and usually you have a stronger pour, but a finer whiskey, like anything, you yeah, don't need you don't, it. Like, yeah, like yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to go through a great twenty dollars shot in yeah. five minutes. You want to make that sucker last. So right. it just to me it sets up the conversation way better. Yeah. Well, thank you for that a little whiskey tour, and thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I've been totally blessed and encouraged and challenged by it. Um, if people want to find you, I know you have a website, uh, HughHalter.com. Is that the best place for people to go? Yeah. But I, I hardly do anything. So <laughs> they, they can find stuff. Um, occasionally, I will post something on Facebook if I'm in a new city or speaking somewhere. Um, if they want to find any of the books, they can just Amazon my, my name, and those will pop up. Uh, there's a few books on my personal website you just mentioned that are not on Amazon. Okay. But, uh, yeah, if they want to check out Post Commons, they can find uh, postcommons.com. Okay. And, um I do have on occasion pastoral teams that come through and just want to spend a day processing. So if any people feel like that would be helpful, we're happy to accommodate that. And, uh, cool. You know where to find us. We'll be in a little crappy town <laughs> on the Mississippi here <laughs> out of St. Louis. Becoming slightly less crappy through post commons, apparently. <laughs> well, strangely, the guy that gave me the building is now going to commit a hundred million dollars to renovate our downtown. So, oh my gosh. um, it's our little cruddy town, which is full of amazing people. It's going to get a bit of a facelift, so it's going to be fun the next 10 years to see what, see what happens in the city. Awesome. Hugh, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. All right, man. Great, great chat. Take care.